No one could ever know me. No one could ever see me. Seems you're the only one who knows what it's like to be me. Someone to face the day with, make it through all the rest with. Someone I'll always laugh with, even at my worst. I'm best with you. Yeah. <laughs> that is quite a promise, isn't it? And it's one that I suppose we wish could be true. Imagine you could have a friend like that. Now, our modern culture is radically individualistic. We no longer define who we are in traditional ways. In traditional cultures, you were defined by your duties. Who am I? Answer, you're defined by your role in a community. You are a son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, a chief, a servant, whatever it might be. Your role was given to you. But now, in the West, we define and create our own identity by looking within ourselves, finding our deepest needs and feelings and desires, and then creating our own identity. And our culture constantly says, be yourself. You must be yourself. And the self is found by looking within. And that leaves us very, very fragile. In the past, people were deeply enmeshed in extended family relationships. Their lives were defined by that network where you fit in the family. But now we often strike out on our own. Many leave home for work or education and never go back. What will fill those gaps? And one of the big answers from our culture is friends. We hope that friendship will provide the love and security that we need. We hope that friends will help me find who I am. More than that, friendship will help me find myself. I think this helps to explain why there's such a big emphasis, you might say an overemphasis, on friendship in our culture. And for many people now, losing a friend is a catastrophe. It's a guaranteed tearjerker in a film when someone says, but he was my friend. And they're like, oh no, you've lost a friend. Friendship is so important. So we're thinking about friendship today and we're thinking about it through the Bible's lens. Friendship is very important to living well. The Bible acknowledges that. And yet, a lot of us are quite confused about friendship. In spite of the talk, maybe we don't do friendship that well. We need help. It's not natural to us. It's a skill that has to be learned. And wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, is the skill of living well. Now, we're in an eight-part series on Proverbs. Hopefully, you've got one of these booklets because all the Bible texts are in it. If you don't, could you just wave and some enterprising person at the back? Yeah, could you make sure, thanks so much, that everyone's got this. And if you turn to the center fold, page 14, I think it is, we've got all our Bible passages in there from the ancient book of Proverbs. Proverbs deals with the small change of daily life. It shows us godliness in working clothes. And it directs us to grow in deep character as people, human maturity, straight thinking. At the beginning of this series, I quoted a great scholar called Derek Kidner, who said this, there are details of character that are small enough to escape the mesh of God's law and the broadsides of the prophets, yet are decisive in personal dealings. And Proverbs is all about that, the nitty-gritty of life, 
the small details. How are we going to live? It deals with our messy, complicated lives because there are so many situations, aren't there, where it's not a matter of right and wrong, black and white, but of good judgment. Plenty of situations in life where there's no rule book. You're not quite sure how to behave, how to speak, what to do. You need wisdom. And so God gives us the Proverbs. We had an example of this in my family yesterday. We were driving to central London for a wedding, and my middle son, who is the only one who knows how to drive, was sitting in the back seat, and he, he made a, a, a comment about uh, something on the road. For me, the driver. And I, I said, thank you, I've seen that. And then he said, I'm sorry, maybe that was a bit irritating. And I said, no, it was helpful. You should always speak. If you think the driver needs to, to know something, you should speak up. And then he said, yeah, but there's nothing worse than an irritating backseat driver, is there? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, you're right. You're right about that. That's not to mention the front seat driver. <laughs> no, no more about that. <laughs> right, take that out of the recording, please. <laughs> and then he asked a key question. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference between a very wise and helpful comment that the driver needs to know, you're about to hit that truck, and being a real pain in the backside who's always chipping in and saying, do this, do that, the other. And actually, if you do that all the time, it really is very wearing. It won't be good for relationships. So how do you know? And I said, ah, oh, the answer is wisdom. Just got to learn wisdom. And that's what Proverbs is doing. And we discover that Proverbs has great wisdom for us in this important aspect of friendship. Here are four points about friendship. They all begin with C. Character, caution, challenge, and creator. Firstly, in your book, the character of friendship. What is friendship's character? It's true essence, it's nature. It's important to ask this because there is such a thing as true friendship and false friendship, and it can be hard to tell which is which. And true friendship, we find in these Proverbs, is loyal, honest, and a joy. Let's look at the first Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Proverbs 18:24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Notice what these verses are saying. No matter what the season, a true friend always loves you. They love at all times. That refers to all the changing scenes of life, trouble, and enjoy. We make a promise like this in marriage. I witnessed uh, Will and Chloe making this promise yesterday. I'll be there for you in sickness, as well as health. I'll be there for you when we're richer, and when we're poorer, for the good times and the bad times and the ugly times, I'll be there for you. And that, according to Proverbs, is one of the marks of true friend. A true friend loves at all times. They actually stick closer than a sibling. That's a remarkable statement in the Old Testament, in a world that, that valued family so much, to say a friend can stick closer than a sibling, a brother or sister. Now, you see, the thing is, your family have to stand by you, don't they? Your family sort of don't have much choice. 
Family have to be there because they're family. But a true friend chooses you. He or she cherishes you for who you are. And they will be there for you if they're true friends, even when it costs them. And at times when they have to do most of the giving. That is loyal. Secondly, a true friend is honest. Look at the next proverb, 27, verse 5 to 6. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. How do you like the sound of wounds from a friend? I don't like being wounded. I don't know if it's just me. You know, wounds from a friend... It means an open challenge or a rebuke. Real friends, according to the Bible, tell each other what they need to hear, even if it is hard to say and painful to receive. True friendship never harms, but it does hurt at times. We're using a devotional book, and we've managed to obtain more copies to sell this week, eight pounds only here at King's Church. We've got a pile of them at the back. This book is fantastic. It gives you a proverb for every day of the year and a reflection and a prayer. Great way to start the day or to discuss with friends or family. And that book says a really striking thing. If you are too afraid to say what needs to be said, you are really an enemy of your friend's soul. If you're too afraid to say what needs to be said, you're actually an enemy of your friend's soul. True friendship is honest. We need people who love us enough to challenge us, to rebuke us, friends who will counsel us and speak the truth in love. And you know, we cannot actually live well and become mature humans without such friends because naturally we tend to look in and become self-centered and self-preoccupied and our world shrinks and shrivels in on us and without friends to love and challenge us, we become less than we were made to be. True friendship is loyal and honest. And thirdly, true friendship is a joy. See, this is not to say that true friendship is always a matter of tough conversations. The essence of a real friend is that you enjoy them. Being with them is such a joy. Look at this next proverb here. Uh, Proverbs 27 verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Great thinkers from Aristotle to C.S. Lewis have commented that the heart of a great friendship lies in the moment when you connect with another person and you suddenly say, you, as, you too? That's me. me I'm, I'm like that as well. I thought I was the only one. And you have that deep connection over something. You too. Perfume, it says, and incense are pleasant things. They often have the impact of lifting the senses, of bringing joy. They make life more fragrant. Some smells are just simply delightful. How much more precious is a true friend who brings joy to the heart? Someone to share your heart with who actually listens. Someone who gets me because they take the time and the effort to understand. Someone who is ready with an appropriate word. That phrase, the pleasantness of a friend, is so lovely and it can be translated sweetness. 
True friendship is sweet. It's delicious. It's so precious. You can't put a price on it, which is why we need to value true friendship. It's loyal. It's honest. It's a joy. But we also need to beware the counterfeit for the false friendship. Look at the uh, over there, page 15, the false friendship. Look at these first three Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 20. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. See what you're saying? Rich people have many friends. Proverbs 19, verse 4. Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Proverbs 19, verse 6. Many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is the friend of one who gives gifts. This is real-world stuff. What is going on here? Proverbs often make a wise point through an extreme statement. It gives us a window on reality. The point here is that there are many relationships that are basically a transaction. People engage in the relationship because they want to get something out of it. The rich have many friends. I wonder why. Wealth attracts friends. A ruler. Everyone's a friend of the person who gives gifts. Some years ago, a friend told me that whenever he met a new person, he estimated what he called the ERP. And I said, what's the ERP? ERP is the estimated relationship potential. And as he was saying it, I was thinking, that sounds a bit cold. <laughs> the ERP said, if the ERP is low... I try and end the conversation quickly. And he also told me about a traffic light system, that if a person was a red light, he would get out of there as fast as he could. You see, people can seek friends out because of benefits that they're going to accrue. Social benefits, being with the most good-looking, popular, or in cool person in your social circle. A friend gets you in. An influential friend can give you more influence, social benefits. Also, economic benefits. People think that making friends with someone rich will enrich them. And the letter of James in the New Testament warns us very strongly about showing any kind of partiality in church based on economics. The more senior you become at work, the more likely people will want to get to know you to advance themselves. And they can be very charming. I used to work in top-level recruitment in the West End of London, and we had a talk given by a senior partner to the whole company, encouraging staff to take up a hobby where they could befriend potential clients. He said, uh, I've taken up golf, and another person's taken up shooting, because you will meet people who you could cultivate as clients for economic benefit. Thirdly, emotional benefits. Underneath, can I tell you something that I've concluded? Underneath, I think we're all basically insecure. He agrees. We're all basically insecure. Uh, you might come up and challenge me on this, but I think it's probably true. Most of us feel like imposters, especially when you get to a certain age. I had an elder in my previous church who, who was a very wise man, John Chapman. He said, in my 40s, I felt so fake that if I stood next to a lamp, I thought people would see through me. 
many of us feel gloomy a lot of the time. Maybe it's just how you're wired up or your background, family of origin. You, you, maybe you feel anxious. And the promise of friendship is a person who will be there for me and cheer me up, bring light and joy. And after all, we've seen that that is a genuine aspect of friendship. But here's the problem. The false friend is only in it for themselves. The false friend is draining you. And if you stop and watch, you realize that it's actually one-way traffic. You never feel energized by them, only drained. A sure sign of a false friend is someone who talks about themselves and never asks a question. You'd be with them for an hour and they don't know any more about you. That can't be a true friend, can it? Now, these proverbs here show us that false friendship is fickle, it's self-serving, and it's taking. The poor, it says, a close friend of a poor person deserts them because they've got so much need. Self-serving, I'll, I'll be in this for what I can get, and taking. I'll be with them because I might get a gift from them. And here's the problem. A true friend and a false friend can look absolutely identical on the outside. You could be sitting here now with a true friend on one side, a false friend on the other, and they look the same. It's not like one of them looks like a bad guy. But in one case, the friend is seeking, the friend is seeking what they can get from you, and in the other case, the friend loves you and is committed to you. So what's the difference between them? Again, wisdom. It's the false friend sees you as a means to an end. You're just a means to an end. I met a young man from another country who spoke really good English, and I complimented him. He was just young, but he spoke impeccable English. I said, how did you learn? He said, well, it wasn't really at school. I wanted to learn English, so I deliberately made friends with people who could speak it and hung out with them as often as I could. Now, I mean, in one sense, that's very smart, isn't it? But he did use them, and people do it all the time. So we need, second point, caution. By the way, these points get quicker in case you're worried about Sunday lunch. The character of friendship, we've thought about true and false, but now we're thinking about caution in friendship. There it is in chapter 12, verse 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. We need discernment. Proverbs urges it. Be discerning in friendship that the righteous choose their friends carefully because friends are so influential on you they can shape you Steve pointed this out earlier a friendship is a friend shape I just made that up <laughs> friends are so shaping we need to be careful in the ones who are shaping us don't we and it's righteous to choose a friend carefully in other words even when we do enjoy that me too connection moment we other factors must shape who we pursue friendships with. Aristotle, many years ago, the Greek philosopher, uh, not a Christian, but a wise person, identified three types of friendship. One is friendship based on utility. A friendship is good because it's useful at this time. So when the reason for the friendship disappears, so does the friendship. Sometimes such friends don't actually even like each other. Aristotle said, they take pleasure in each other's company only insofar as they have hopes of advantage from it. 
He also said there are friendships based on pleasure, and these are very common with young people. Young people, you probably have many more friends now than you will do the older you get. And young people are often very influenced by their feelings and seeking pleasure. And, but as you grow, you may find that you're quick to break and make friendships that are only based on pleasure. They need to be based on something more. Thirdly, Aristotle observed that true friendship is based on goodness. And remember, this is a person who didn't know anything about Jesus. Only the friendship of those who are good, he said, is true. For these people wish good for the other. And it is those who desire the good for their friends, for the friend's sake, that are most truly friends. Doesn't that sound like Proverbs? True friendship between good people is friendship in its highest form. We'll come back to that at the end. How can you get to be like that? But Proverbs continues there on on the page, page 15, Proverbs 22, 24 to 25. Don't make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. A hot-tempered person is someone who is passionate, emotional, but they've got no control over their, their uh, temper. It burns rapidly and it breaks out and, and it scorches tends to damage things around them, damage other people. That's hot temper in the Bible. The Bible actually says an elder in a church should not be quick-tempered. Just, just character. Because here, you will inevitably get somehow caught up in their anger. Anger is a fire that spreads in unintended ways, damaging everything it touches. And a quick-tempered friend does that, so be very careful. Chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Be wary of the gossip and the person who repeats an offense, stirring up conflict, a stirrer. We thought about this last Sunday night because last Sunday we thought about listening in the morning and speaking in the evening. And the nature of gossip is that somebody tells information that they have about another person to another, to another individual to undermine that first one. That's the nature of it. It's not every type of sharing isn't gossip. You have to be wise to know the difference. And the difference is the gossip takes some information they know, maybe something personal, secret, or intimate, and they share it with someone else in order to undermine the first person. And they might even be saying that they're doing it for some kind of Christian reason. Oh, maybe we could pray about this. But really what they're doing is undermining the first person. And the gossip can separate close friends. I've seen it happen in churches where somebody went around with a story and turned people against each other. It's deadly. It is toxic, actually. We've got to be so careful of that kind of person. So because friendship is a truly good thing, we must beware of the counterfeits, the false. Learn to be discerning. Watch out for those who seem to offer true friendship, but actually are only in, in it for themselves. And let's beware of our own tendency to use people. It's not just them out there, right? It's us. It's always us. All of life is repentance. Let's beware our own tendency to use people. Friendship shapes you. You shape others. You become like your friends. Be discerning. But don't be cynical. Don't be cynical because friendship also has a great opportunity and that comes with the challenge 
of it. Look over the page, please. Uh, page 16, the challenge of friendship. A very famous verse in the Bible, this actually. Proverbs 27:17. as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, just imagine sharpening a tool or a knife, you know, a, a, a cutting knife or something that's made of metal, and you're having to sharpen it on this other thing that's made of iron. And what would be happening there would be hot, dangerous, got to be careful. And the thing that's being sharpened is having bits taken off it, isn't it? And that's how you get a blunt knife to be a sharp knife, is by literally taking some of the knife off by that sharpening process. And then the knife gets refined, or the tool, whatever tools you gardeners use in the church. So what he's saying is, it's not comfortable to be in a friendship with someone, but it will change you. True friends sharpen each other. They clash, but they do so constructively. And they actually refine each other and make each other better people. They take off the rough edges and smoothing out. A true friend actually builds your character. They change us for the better and make us what we ought to be. Like the difference between a useless tool that's blunt and got all bits hanging off it and a sharp useful tool. There are things in your life that will be sharpened about you by a friend that would never have changed otherwise. So true friendship is indispensable if we're going to grow and flourish and become the mature person that God wants us to be. Friendship is a gift. So don't give up on it. And that might be hard for you, especially if you've been wronged or deeply disappointed in friendship. Don't give up. Don't be cynical. Friends do get rarer, I think, as we get older, and friendship can get squeezed out by busyness in life. But it is a gift, and there's nothing like it, because God uses it to shape us and refine us into who he wants us to be, so we should pursue it. Let me just ask a few questions before we go on to our final point. Who, who are your best friends, and how do they shape you and influence you? How many real friends do you have? People who have the permission to hurt you in love. And what kind of friend are you? If you think about true friends, they're loyal, honest, and a joy. Now, that it does take some effort, doesn't it, to be loyal to someone, honest with them, and a joy to be with. What kind of friend are you? Is it possible to be like that? And I think the answer is yes, if we know the gospel. Because in the good news of Jesus Christ, we find what it means to fear the Lord and we receive the new birth by God's spirit. And so we know the creator of friendship. Final point, the creator of friendship. Let us, as we come to the Lord's table, meditate on the creator of friendship, the one who makes us friends, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have a paragraph from John's gospel, which we're going to use as we close. As the Father has loved me, said Jesus, so I have loved you. Let's read that again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. doesn't get any higher than that. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Or I have told you this so that my joy 
may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus spoke these words knowing that he was going to be crucified the next day. What does this mean? Listen, Jesus calls us his friends. Jesus, if you're a Christian here, Jesus Christ calls you his friend. And he laid down his life for you. That's an extraordinary privilege. In the Old Testament, it was a great privilege just to be called a servant of the Lord. And not everyone could have that title, by the way. A servant of the Lord was a very, very prestigious title in the Old Testament. Specially reserved. But Jesus says... I no longer call you servants. (laughs) I call you friends. We're coming to the table of a friend to remember what he did for us. Jesus Christ therefore knows everything about you, by the way. He knows everything about you, yet he still calls us his friends. There's a lovely old hymn that says this. I found a friend, oh such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which nothing can sever. For I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. Jesus calls us friends. He knows everything about us, and therefore he calls us to be friends. And we can because of him because of his cross. See, at the cross, the greatest friendship, the original friendship in the universe, the friendship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was ruptured and broken, and Jesus was abandoned and desolate and abject and forsaken, and he cried out, not Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God, for the first time ever, felt distant, because he was bearing on that cross the weight of all our sin and shame. He drank the cup of God's anger down to the last drop for you to make you his friend. The friendship of the Trinity was broken at that point. And there at the cross we see the consequences of every bit of selfishness, of every bit of self-centeredness. And there we see the means by which we can be set free from that and walk in the light. By looking at Jesus on the cross, we find the freedom and joy to walk in his ways, to obey his command. And his command here, he says twice, is love each other as I have loved you. And that's friendship. Because loving each other is laying down your life for the other person. And the hymn continues, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He bled, he died to save me. And not alone the gift of life, but his own self he gave me. Nothing that I have, my own I call, I hold it for the giver. My heart, my strength, 
my life, my all are his and his forever. Amen. Let's come to the table. Going to invite the elders who are serving at the table to come forward at this time. I'm just going to uncover the elements here and thank you, Mike. Thank you. Uh, reveal these elements as uh, Mike has so appropriately mentioned as we came to the table that we're coming uh, as believers to the table of a friend, our God and our Savior. And these elements here are intended, as was mentioned, to be a remembrance to us, but this is also intended to be a very relational time for us, uh, a relational time for us as followers of Jesus, that as we come to these, we're reminded of the great price that was paid in love, that we might be His, that we might have our sins forgiven and eternal life, but also of the bonds that exist between us as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reminds us when he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the, in the body of Christ? There's this relational dynamic that we, uh, as we come and, and, and reflect upon uh, how it is that we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is because of Jesus. It is not merely transactional. It is not something that is cold, but that he in love provided for us. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. It's time for us to reflect, to relate, to remember that what has us here at this table more than anything else, actually the only thing, is what Jesus has done for us. And we remember that as well. We're called to remember that not just that this event happened, but the significance of what it means for us as followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It is a time to remember, yes, but to remember in a way of reverent reflection, not just to mark that it happened, but that we are to reflect upon the impact upon our lives. About those areas that we sang earlier, where we praise the name of Jesus as the one who set us free, who broke the chains of sin and death, that we might for, be forgiven and walk in newness of life. And so as we reflect upon what he experienced for us, that rupture of relationship in the Godhead, that we might be one with him and restored to relationship, that we do pause and reverently reflect. A man ought to examine himself, the Apostle Paul goes on, before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks 
judgment on himself. That we reverently reflect, that we consider what are those areas of our lives that are not in alignment with his will, not that we might morbidly remain there, but that we might repent and experience renewal and newness of life as we walk forgiven and freshly in step with his spirit. And so as we come to the time where we'll be distributing the elements, uh, I would encourage you, and I'll provide a time for us just to have 30 seconds to a minute, to invite the Lord to cast the light of his spirit from his word upon areas of our lives that need to come in alignment with, with his will. And as we distribute these, you'll often hear us say uh, at King's Church that this is a table that is open. What we mean by that, it is open to any and all who have come to Jesus in the manner in which they're putting their trust and faith in him and him alone, and what he has done on the cross for us for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. This is not something that is exclusive to the membership of this local body, but if you belong to Jesus, this table is open to you. There's also an expression we use where we say the table is fenced. And what that simply means is that, as I said earlier, this table, this bread, and this cup is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. It is highly relational. It is a time that is meant for him and his followers to reflect, as I said, to remember, and to focus on that relationship that we have with him. And so we would respectfully ask you if you've yet to cross that line of faith, if you've been here curious but unconvinced, we would love for you to turn to Jesus in faith and have that relationship with him yourself. But this morning what we would respectfully ask you to do is let these elements go by and observe them and let the significance of what they are speak to your heart and to your soul about what it is perhaps that the Lord would want to be doing in your life this day uh, to draw you unto himself. And so let's just pause now and pray uh, quietly to ourselves, allow the Lord to speak to us about those areas that need to come under his forgiveness, his cleansing, and his renewal.